0: morning Emmaus Road Church it's so good to be back with you guys Uh, yeah as Greg said my wife and Abigail and I have been in Louisville Kentucky the last uh, eight months or so and uh, been studying it's been such a joy and a rich season for us in our marriage Um, but we just want to thank you guys uh, before I begin here this morning just thank you for your prayers thank you guys for your support Uh, financially, um, receiving text messages, uh, letters, um, encouragements throughout the year. It's just been so kind of you guys, um, just the evidence of God's grace from this church and how you guys have cared for us as we've been away. So thank you guys. Um, I'm excited to get the opportunity to bring God's Word this morning. And so as we turn our attention to God's Word, you You can turn your Bibles to Acts 17, or Acts, that's where we are in Louisville, I'm sorry. I know where I'm preaching, we're in Exodus 17, Uh, and uh, that's where we'll be this morning. Um, Why don't we just pray and ask the Lord to to bless this time, and then we'll begin. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for all that you've given us in Christ. Thank you that because of him we can gather and hear your word. We, We trust that you will... Reveal Yourself to us. We trust that Your Spirit is here among us, opening Your wor- Word to us and teaching us and speaking to us. We pray that, that You would have Your intended effect this morning on these people, on me, and uh, strengthen our faith, Lord. pray that You would be blessed and honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. World War II was, without a doubt, one of the most important events of the 20th century. It was also the most destructive. Following the horrors of the war, the German nation was left in shambles. People were left wrestling with, what had just happened? Who's to blame for all the damage? In the wake of all these atrocities, a certain German Lutheran pastor by the name of Gunther Rutenborn wrestled with these questions. The answer to his wrestlings came out in a play he wrote called The Sign of Jonah. In this play, the story follows a group of people as they seek to determine who is responsible for the destruction brought on by the war and Holocaust. The big question that the play asks is, who's to blame for all these tragedies? One writer summarizing the answer that the play means to draw the audience into seeing writes, no one is really to blame. A stormtrooper was merely following orders. An industrialist merely kept up production. A citizen simply did not become involved. Yet, in defending their own innocence, each of the accused becomes an accuser. All are guilty. Some are guilty by words, others by silence, some by what they did, others by what they did not. And suddenly, the accused accusers all take up another cry. We are to blame, yes, but we are not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. God must go to trial. So what do the people do? In the play, they bring God to trial. The people not only accuse God, but prosecute, convict, and sentence God. When faced with the hard things of life, how is it that people tend to react? See, The history of God's people is not just the, the exodus out of Egypt. Their journey to the promised land includes severe trials that test their faith and reveal the object of their trust. And what about us? Most of us know the joy of delivery out of sin's captivity. But how are we doing on this journey to the promised land? How do you respond to the difficulties and tragedies of life? Is it possible that we, like the people in Ruthenborn's play, would put God on trial? This is precisely what we see the people of God do in the wake of their crisis from our text in Exodus 17:1 through 7. 1-7. So this text is very instructive for each of us. And so, as is the custom here, if you guys would please stand, we're going to read from Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and out of reverence for God's authoritative word, uh, we'll stand and, and hear God address us through the reading of his word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You may be seated. In this text, we again find the Israelites grumbling about their situation in the wilderness of Sinai. As Matt addressed for us last week, we saw them grumbling about the water in chapter 15, and then again about food in chapter 16. And in these first two examples, we could maybe see why their worry is understandable. If you remember back, they, when, they were asked to, or when they were called to leave Egypt, they left in such a hurry, they had no time to take provision. But at this point, how do they still not get it? I mean, they've already witnessed the ten plagues in Egypt, they've passed through the Red Sea on dry land, they saw the provision of fresh water at Meribah, and they've already tasted from the bread of heaven. How could they still, be possi- how could they still possibly be grumbling about water? But do we not tend to do the same thing? After tasting time and again of God's kind provision, we still doubt His goodness, And we grumble about the things he gives us. How is it that we struggle to trust God after he has consistently shown himself faithful to provide? If you're here this morning and you've ever experienced dissatisfaction or doubted God's goodness, that's me. The truth contained in this text is for you. Maybe you're in a trial right now. And if you were honest, you'd say, it's not easy to discern the good that God is up to in your life. The message of Exodus 17, 1-7 is meant to convince us of this. Because God is present with His people, we can trust Him in all things. Because God is present with His people, we can surely trust all our cares to Him. We're going to see how this case is made by considering two different trials that are taking place in this passage. The first trial that we're going to look at is that of the Israelites. This trial takes place as the Lord tests His people in the wilderness. And then in the second trial, we're going to see the tables turned, and so that this time the Israelites are actually going to try to place God on trial. This passage, the passage begins by explaining the hard situa- situation that the Israelites are in. And it's, this is the stage for which this first trial is set. That is, the trial of an unfaithful people, where despite God's provision, God's people sinfully complain. If you look in verse 1, we learn that it is really the Lord who's the one leading them to this place. It says that they're moving from place to place in the wilderness according to the command of the Lord. Therefore, coming to Rephidim and experiencing their present crisis of having no water, to drink, came as a result of following the command of the Lord. As part of their spiritual ongoing education, the Lord has been bringing them through a series of tests. We saw this at the water of Merah in Exodus 15, 25, where it says that God tested them after he had made the bitter water sweet. Then again in chapter 16, verse 4, when the Lord provided bread from heaven, he says he does so in a way that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. See, the purpose behind both of these trials is revealed as a means of testing the people to see, um, to see if they will continue to trust and obey him. As God had said to Moses in Exodus 15, verse 26, there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So let's turn our attention to look at this trial that we find them starting in verse 1. Um, says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So consider this scene. Here we have the entire congregation of Israel says that it was around 600 men who came out of Egypt and that includes, and then with that, all of their women, children, so that estimates are around two million people and their livestock out here in the middle of nowhere Refidim, and there's not a drop of water for them to drink. They cannot just stop by the nearest Flying jay and freshen up on snacks and beverages. No, they and their vulnerable families and flocks are experiencing deep thirst and they see no way of satisfying it. In verse 3, it says that the people thirsted there for water. I can think of almost no more natural human impulse than that of thirst. Right? Our thirst drives us. After you come in after a day of yard work or come back on a hot day from a run, nobody has to tell you to go take a drink of water. Right? Your body craves it. So consider your response when, in that craving, you can find no satisfaction. Picture yourself out on a, let's say, a remote hike in the Grand Canyon. The sun is beating down on you. You just drank your final water bottle a couple hours ago, and you finally come to a rest area. You see a faucet, and in your thirst, you rush over to turn the knob. Then as you twist the knob, your hope of a drink is crushed as nothing but dust comes out. And then to make matters worse, You turn around and you see the despairing look on your spouse and kids. Your hope is crushed even further. Well, how do the Israelites handle the pressure from the situation that they're experiencing? See in verse 2 and 3 how the circumstances expose their hearts. It says, Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and that in their thirst the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. They're enraged with Moses, and they blame him for bringing them out into the wilderness to die of thirst. See, when we are placed in pressing situations like this, our natural tendency is to begin blaming someone else. Right, the question of who got us into this mess quickly becomes a finger-pointing match of accusations. On the surface, it seems obvious that in the people's mind, Moses is to blame for the situation. However, in this case, Moses was really just the nearest one to point the finger at. The displeasure that they felt with Moses was really just a symptom of their deeper displeasure with God. This is shown in Moses' response to them at the end of verse 2, where Moses says, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? God was the one who had appointed Moses as their leader. And Moses led them according to the word of God. Therefore, the people could not reject Moses without really rebelling against God. See, Moses didn't lead them to this place because he thought, that well, this is where the water is. It was because he was following the command of God. Their situation was the result of God's sovereign leading over their lives. Therefore, their dissatisfaction and grumbling, and really any grumbling for that matter, Therefore, um, is really a result of the sinful dissatisfaction we feel with God and His sovereign rule. But before we go looking down our noses at the Israelites, imagine your own response. How often are we tempted to grumble for much less? Grumbling about your brother taking the last slice of pizza. Grumbling about your spouse when they interrupt your reading or some really important task that you're working on. Um, Grumbling after you've hit the third red light in a row. Grumbling at the extended winter that just won't end. <laughs> uh, easy for me to say when I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's <laughs> 60 degrees. So, <laughs> um, Okay, so we can all grumble and get upset at different times. But what was the big deal with that? I mean, we're all just human. Don't kid yourself. Grumbling is no small offense. Look how quickly their initial grumbling escalates and the point where it ends. Moses cries out in verse four, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You see, their angry grumbling and quarreling has grown to the point where Moses was convinced the people were about to stone him. In their rage, they were ready to kill the man they saw stand before Pharaoh on their behalf, the man who had led them out of slavery through the Red Sea and the man through whom God had performed miracle after miracle for their good. Now, in a moment of intense thirst, they are ready to put all that aside and kill him. Notice the subtle progression. It begins with a natural and good desire for water, and then that desire is unfulfilled in, first, in verse one, and they begin to grumble, and that unfulfilled desire or, and then sorry, <laughs> they then begin to grumble and the unfulfilled, des- unfulfilled desire. Be- quarreling with one another and they blame Moses and then their anger grows they make demands and they're ready to murder if those demands are not met James 4 explains this kind of trajectory when the unmet desires in our sinful hearts similarly when he says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. How different this situation could have looked had the Israelites turned to God in faith after trusting, seeing all his kind provision and looked to him and asked, saying, God, supply us our, our, our needed water. But they didn't. And this treachery here left a serious mark, then, for future biblical writers. See, whenever this trial of the Israelites is referenced in other places in Scripture, it's almost always used as a warning. Hear the warning from this event that the psalmist in Psalm 95 leaves for the generations to come. He says, Do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Or a similar warning coming from Hebrews 3 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test. How was it that they were hardening their hearts? How did they put God to the test? By grumbling against God where God had placed them, and what God was bringing them through. As God brings us through different seasons in our lives, we're to beware of the hardening effects of grumbling. The writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 3 to say, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. God calls his people to trust him. Looking to God in faith is what positions us to receive his grace. However, when we complain, we're doing the opposite. When we complain, our complaints are really against God, the one who's ruling all things sovereignly. Our discontent in our circumstances is really a demonstration of dissatisfaction with God and His rule. This is a serious sin. It demonstrates a lack of confidence in God's word and character. This is the opposite of faith. And it is the same hard heart of unbelief that would soon prevent the Israelites from entering into the promised land, and and which keeps us from all that God has promised for us in Christ. The Israelites' example of unfaithfulness ought to serve as a sober warning for us. Like the Israelites, we're all going to find ourselves in different seasons of want or desire, and on this occasion for them it was water to satisfy their thirst. For us, it could be any number of wants, often with desires that are good or even needful. The desire could be something acute, like hunger, taking a vacation, hanging out with friends, or it could be something more chronic, like the desire for a spouse, or children, or recovery from illness. When hopes and desires like these get deferred, that can be a serious trial. But whatever the intensity of these trials, whether it's something light like burnt toast, to the weightiest kinds of suffering of the soul. They serve to expose our neediness and ultimately what we are trusting in. So while the Israelites question, is the Lord among us or not, is clearly out of a heart of unbelief, it really is revealing of what they need most. You see, lack of water is not the ultimate issue. God has already proven he can provide for them out of nothing. The real issue is whether God is with them. When we face trials, the answer to this question makes all the difference. In the heat of the moment, do we tend to reason from our circumstances to God or from God to our circumstances? Or to put it into the context that these people are in, saying, no water, therefore no God, versus saying, God is with us, therefore we know water is coming. We were created to know commune with, and be satisfied by God. In him are all our desires truly met. However, because of our sin, these desires can get twisted or misplaced, producing all kinds of wickedness. Look again at the case of the Israelites. We see their sin blinds them with a spiritual amnesia. They forget his goodness and instead are filled with an inordinate desire for water. Though what they need most is God's presence, that is not where they turn. Rather than turning to him in faith to satisfy their thirst, they accuse God for holding out on them. Instead of trusting God to provide, as he had so many times before, they put him to the test with their grumbling. And to what should be our amazement, he willingly subjects himself to that test. As they put the Lord to the test by their grumbling and accusations against him, this is what brings us to our second trial, the trial of a faithful God. So by the time that the Israelites come to the barren land of Rephidim, they were tired of being tested. In their minds, they were done being the ones in question. They wanted to take the reins and be the ones who get to start asking the questions. And so they call God to account by bringing up charges against him. But how is it that the people place God on trial? What right do they have to pull such a move? Well, the reality is they they really have no right. How can we, finite creatures, teach the Almighty Creator how the universe, and much less our lives, ought to run? So in view of this ridiculous picture of people charging God with wrong, God's God's words to Job ought to ring out in our minds. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? However, this cosmic insurrection is what takes whenever we sinful humans raise our fists in discontent and grumbling against God. The creature... In his grumbling, places Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, behind the defendant's table. Meanwhile, we seat ourselves behind the judge's table, gavel in hand. This is what the Israelites are doing in this text. Twice the people's actions are described as putting God to the test. Then in verse 2, it says that the people quarreled with Moses, and Moses responds with, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The Hebrew word used here for quarrel is the term used in a covenantal lawsuit. This is the word that one would use when conducting a legal, legal suit when they have a dispute against another. This use sheds light on the magnitude of what is going on here. The people are contending with Moses and the Lord God as if they were bringing a lawsuit against him. So as we have seen, their charges is ultimately not against Moses at all, but it goes all the way to the top. Against the Lord God himself. And so uh, see also how verse 7 sheds light on the nature of the charge of their dispute. The question, they question God by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, is their belief, unbelief, not unbelievable? After all they've done, it's only been about two months since they've seen all that God did in Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and were delivered out of slavery. And they're already doubting God's faithful presence. And accuse him of abandoning them. Further, they demand for water, or the demand for water they make in verse two shows that they believe God is withholding good from them. Well, the accusations get worse. Look earlier in verse three, where they say, "Why'd you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?" So not only are they accusing him of abandonment for depriving of their them of their needs, but also with the intent. kill them. They are ready to charge God with murder. And based on their response in verse 4, where they are ready to stone the Lord's servant Moses, it seems their verdict has already been made. In their hearts, they have found God guilty. But rather than reaching out and striking them all down for their high-handed rebellion, the Lord willingly subjects himself to their test. See how God's response to Moses in verse 5 sets the stage for this trial. He tells Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Moses and the elders were to pass on before the people to the rock at Horeb. In ancient times, whenever there was a matter under dispute, the assembly of elders were gathered in order to pass judgment. So when Moses was gathering the elders, he is in essence forming a jury for the trial. And so, with the elders gathered at Horeb, the courtroom is set for the hearing. Continuing on in verse 5, the Lord says to Moses Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. This staff is the same staff that God had given Moses back at the burning bush. This staff served as a proof of his presence, it was also representative of God's power and authority as the true judge. By adding the phrase, take the staff with which you struck the Nile, in his instructions to Moses, he means to call to mind his judgment against Egypt and the ten plagues, particularly the one plague where he struck the Nile and the water turned to blood. Just as this served as a divine judgment against Egypt, when Moses strikes the rock, this is to be seen as another act of divine judgment. So what then is so significant about the rock? Well, verse 6 describes this rock as the rock at Horeb. Holding this trial at Horeb is significant because Horeb was the location that God first called Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And he promised that he would bring the people to this place. So the simple fact that they are now here ought to call to mind God's proven faithfulness. Further, God says of the rock in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God tells Moses that he himself will stand before him and all the elders at the rock. The Lord puts forth his presence such that he is present at the rock when Moses struck it. In this way, God is subjecting himself to judgment, But notice, this judgment is not the judgment of the people as they wanted. While God was willing to stand the test, he would not subject himself to the judgment of sinful man. Remember the tool used to strike the rock was Moses' staff. This staff was representative of God's divine judgment. So we see in this trial that God is not subjecting himself to man's judgment, which means nothing but his own. Regarding the judgment of God, Psalm 19 declares, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. His judgment is perfect, rightly punishing the evildoer, defending the innocent, and rewarding those who do good. So unlike humans, God sees and knows all things perfectly and is therefore able to render perfect judgment. As the prophet Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so, in light of the charges brought by the people against the Lord, it is this righteous judgment which will declare the decisive verdict. We then see this verdict, continuing in verse 6, where it says, that in the sight of all the elders, Moses strikes the rock, and fresh water pours forth from the rock. The same staff that had struck Egypt in judgment And brought forth death is now used to strike the rock, bringing forth fresh water necessary for sustaining life. God's judgment on the wickedness of Egypt rightly brought forth death and decay in the land. So how does that same divine judgment now bring forth life-giving water for the Israelites? It's not because they were worthy in themselves. By their testing, of God, they have already proved their wickedness. Should any of them try to stand at the rock in judgment, they would have shared the same destruction as Egypt. But the fact that fresh water pours forth declares a contrary verdict. It demonstrates not only God's gracious presence with them and provision for them, but that the Lord is blameless in righteousness. When the people finally satisfy their thirst with the refreshing water from the rock, the proof of God's presence, provision, and pr- protection ought to ring out in their minds as the water passes over their lips, declaring, contrary to all their accusations, God is faithful. God's solution to the people's grumbling was not to just wipe them out, nor was it to just yell at them say, stop grumbling. Rather, he proved his presence with them by providing them with water in their weak and needy state. But we're not clearly not to take this as an excuse for our grumbling. This text demonstrates how our grumbling exhibits a hard-hearted unbelief toward God, which puts him to the test. It is a major offense, which other scriptures warn against, and which must be repented of. So what then does this text say to grumblers like you and me? God's word to us this morning graciously warns us and calls us away from the futility of this sin and to himself. We are to shift our gaze from ourselves and our circumstances to his proven presence and faithfulness. You may ask yourself, okay, so maybe God did this for the Israelites long ago, but how can I be sure that God cares about my life? Wasn't he doing something special back then for Israel that doesn't really take place anymore? I mean, I haven't seen... Red come from heaven, I haven't seen the Red Sea split and walk through it on dry land. How can I trust that God's going to act in this same way toward me? We started this message thinking about Rutenborn's play. In this play's conclusion, God is accused, found guilty and sentenced to become a human, a wanderer on Earth, deprived of His rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty he himself shall die, lose his son, and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be, be disgraced and ridiculed. In God's perfect righteousness, he subjects himself to an even greater punishment than we rebels demand in our blasphemous judgment. You see, that what happened at the rock at Horeb was really a foreshadowing of greater realities yet to come. When Moses struck the rock with his staff, This was not to be the last time that God would submit to the blow of his own justice. The rock that was struck in the desert would be struck again. As God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Paul identifies the rock they drank from at Horeb as Jesus when he says, All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ." This time, Christ would take on flesh and step into the brokenness of the world as a man. He was afflicted and tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Unlike us, in all his trials, Jesus never grumbled. From being tested in the wilderness to hanging on the cross, he perfectly submitted to his Father's will. At the cross, Jesus hung, carrying the weight of our sin, and the blame that we deserved. Before an enraged and unfaithful world, he faced God's judgment. As the prophet Isaiah says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Sorry. Sorry. It's good news. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The divine judgment that Jesus faced on the cross was taken on our behalf. John details these events at the cross, saying, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Unlike the rock at Horeb, this time not only water came out, but water and blood. He shed his blood for our sins, dying the death that we deserve to die. But notice that water was also included, proving that Jesus not only died, but that by his life we would have life. By his death, sorry, we would have life. As Jesus had said in John 4.14, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will bring, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Everyone who then comes to him in faith receives the gift of forgiveness, eternal life, and is sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, God has accomplished for us immeasurably more than that which Israel received at Horeb. Through his atoning life, death, and resurrection, Christ secured for us what is necessary to meet our greatest need, the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with him in Christ. God provided for the needs of his people, despite their sinful complaining. How much more do we know of his goodness when despite our many sins, God has provided for our greatest need. And this is not just a past event. By the Holy Spirit, God's redeeming work continues to be applied to us now And His presence continues with us now by His Holy Spirit. So are you thirsty this morning? In your need, are you feeling dissatisfied or doubting God's goodness? Are you tempted to grumble against God like Israel, saying, Is the Lord really among us? To answer that question, look to Christ, the rock. In Him, God's answer to you at Rephidim and then again at Calvary is an irrefutable yes. And God continues to say to us weak and needy sinners, come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a gift it is that you have given us in providing us your very self. You are indeed present with us. You're not withholding good. Pray that you would comfort us by these words, by this truth. Magnify Christ in our eyes, Lord, and may this truth hit deeply in our hearts, strengthening our faith and uh, keeping us from sin and grumbling and uh, resentment toward you. Bless this gathering. We're thankful, Lord, for all that you've done for us in Christ. You deserve all the glory. You are worthy of all praise. Not to us, Lord, but to you. In Jesus' name, amen.